Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of John. Not me, but the gospel. We're doing John chapter 4 today, and before we begin, customarily, we start off with a video clip. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the clip, and we'll be right back. I do want to live the dreams, pool boy. Taxing is not as sexy as it looks. I want to fill my pockets. What's your poison? Little, uh, cokey-cokey. Can't maintain an erection without buying shoes online. I've never experienced that last one. Talk to me, Goose. I was going to say soul. I want to fill my soul. I want to belong to something like you, Pool Sir. Defender? Hmm? You never cease to surprise me. You know, the depth of your heart is extraordinary. We all need a sense of belonging. We all need a genuine sense of home, a place I want to become home. a contract killer. I'm sorry, what did you say? Remember when I kidnapped Bandhu and threatened him with great violence? Uh, he kind of killed him. And then remember the movie interview with a vampire? I don't want to. When Tom Cruise fed 10-year-old Kirsten Dunn's blood for the first time, and she looked up at his smooth, handsome face and said, I want some more. Oh, fool, picture me, a 10-year-old Kirsten Dunst. I'll never not picture that. Oh, DP, I want my soul filled. Filled to the brim, you know, full, alive, be alive. Those were the words of Dopinder, who was talking to Deadpool in the taxi. Now, my apologies if there was any profanity in that movie. I just couldn't bleep it out for some odd reason, and I just didn't bother trying. So what does it mean to be alive and full and have our soul filled? What does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be, do, to be having a full soul? Well, if it was a feeling, I can definitely point to different chapters in my life where I felt, I definitely felt alive. Uh, when I married my wife, true, it's a true story. I felt alive when Annabelle was born. I felt alive. Annabelle being my daughter, by the way. Uh, when I first saw her come out of Rosanna, uh, my wife, and her crying and bawling, and uh, including my wife, both of them were crying and bawling. Um, and when I saw her opening her eyes and looking at me, and then she took out her hand and held my pinky with her tiny little hand, ooh, I really felt alive. It was right at the feels, you know? Whenever I accomplished a project that I initiated, uh, you know, I initiated from start to finish and I completed it and uh, it was a success. Man, I feel alive. When I watch movies that I can relate to, um, especially those movies where the protagonist defeats the arch enemy, uh, arch enemy uh, where a group of, uh, a team of superheroes gather together and um, assemble to defeat a guy who pretty much wiped out the 50% of the earth with a snap of the finger. When they defeated him, I felt alive. When uh, there was this awesome speech by a president uh, just before they fight a bunch of aliens because the aliens invaded their planet, uh, invaded the planet earth, I felt alive. You know, those massive speeches. I really do feel alive. However, these feelings are temporary. They come and go in spurts. And I'm sure you can relate with me in that. They're not constant. So being alive, being alive should be different, right? It's not just a feeling. Yes, it could be the feelings, 
But I think being alive, being full, having your soul being full should be more than just a feeling. It should be a being, an ethos, an existence in us that is constant every day, no matter what circumstances we are in. So how do we get that? How do we, as I, and I'm just alluding to our passage this today, our passage uses this as a metaphor, how do we get this living water? Living water, i.e. being fully alive, being fully satisfied every day, regardless of the circumstances we face. And what does it look like? Let's begin. John chapter 4, because we are now going into John chapter 4, starting with verse 5. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour which is noontime. Just like the previous chapters, John sets the stage again with references that prompt his readers, you and I, and his readers as well, to ask questions like this. Hmm, what's so significant about these references? Where have I seen this mentioned before in the Old Testament? He first mentions Samaria. Here's a quote from D.A. Carson's commentary on how Jews saw Samaritans. Quote, Samaritans were thought to convey uncleanliness by what they lay, i.e. lie down, sat or rode on, as well as by their saliva and urine. I don't know why D.A. Carson even mentioned that. It's disgusting. Samaritan women, like Gentiles, were considered to be in a continual state of ritual uncleanliness. Apart from these ethnic sensibilities, men, Jewish men, generally would not want to discuss theological issues with women. So being a Samaritan woman, who he will meet soon, that's a no-no. All right, what's another reference that John mentions? A well. Not just Samaria, but John mentions a well. And not just any well, it's Jacob's well. Meaning, John wants his readers, you and I, to note that he's not talking about any well, but the wells in the Old Testament that had significant historical importance, i.e. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Now, why do I say that? These are the key figures in the first five books of the Bible, which coincidentally, as we mentioned, were the only books that Samaritans read. And I don't think I mentioned that. I'm wrong. I didn't mention that. Samaritans only read the first five books of the Bible. They only believed that those five books were legit. And so John here really emphasized the point of Jacob's well because he wanted to refer to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, who was also a very key figure in the five books. Now, why well? What's so significant about the well, and it's Jacob's well, which is the patriarch's well? Well, sorry, I had to do it. Well, this is where many of the patriarchs and Moses found their wives. Wells were the hookup place, a nightclub in those days. So to summarize, Jesus should be just passing by really quickly through Samaria 
because if he didn't, he would be unclean. But instead, Jesus stayed there. And not just stayed there, he went to a nightclub. And not just any nightclub, a nightclub that happens to be Jacob's nightclub. And also, this nightclub was not open. It was at high noon. Nobody was there. Nobody goes out at high noon because it was so freakishly hot. But he goes there at the nightclub during closing hours and sits there. What happened? Well, let's go on to verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, as we mentioned in our commentary from D.A. Carson. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Okay, we already read about how Samaritans were viewed by the Jews. We also knew, know that it's even worse for Samaritan women, right? Jews didn't think highly of Samaritan women. So the woman's reaction does not surprise us when Jesus asked her to give him a drink. She's not only confused and afraid, but probably suspicious of Jesus because he's a Jew, a Jewish man. Why is he risking himself of becoming unclean by drinking out of something touched by a Samaritan? And not only that, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. But it's what Jesus said afterwards that John really wants his readers, you and I, to notice because he mentions it twice. Living water. Let's continue to hear what Jesus says about the living water before we continue. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, the physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five, I was about to say 5,000 husbands. You had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 5,000 husbands. Ooh. Okay, so this living water is obviously referring to something beyond just H2O. Jesus says that those who drink will never be thirsty again, i.e. the source of eternal life. Right? The woman didn't catch this as she continues to think that the living water was H2O running below the well. So to clarify what Jesus meant, what did Jesus say? Well, Jesus responds to her with, Go, call her, call your husband and come here. Wait. The woman was asking for some clarity on what Jesus was talking about when he said living water. And Jesus responds, go, 
Call your husband and come here. What a way to clarify what you mean, Jesus, right? Why would you do that? Instead of defining living water, which the woman wanted to ask in the beginning, he defines the woman's deepest thirst. And what was that? To be genuinely loved, protected, and cared for. To be accepted into a genuine family in light of her promiscuity. To be cleansed from her poor choices and mistakes, and to be received into a community. She was alone. She went to the well by herself at high noon when nobody else would go. Why would she do that? Well, quite frankly, Jesus revealed to her of her sin. And it's because of her sin that she is ashamed of showing her face in public. So to clarify what this living water is, Jesus addressed the Samaritan woman's deepest thirst in her soul. The deepest thirst in her very being that the living water will satisfy. Only the living water will satisfy. For John's readers, there are a few Old Testament passages that uses this combination of water, forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Now, we mentioned already one of them, and that's in Ezekiel 36, when we were discussing the Nicodemus passage a week before, where the water and spirit are God's grace and mercy in forgiving and washing our sins. But the inclusion of thirst and being fully satisfied points to one OT passage, and that's in Isaiah 55. Here, I'll read it. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Samaritan woman probably didn't know about this passage in Isaiah because, hey, she only knew about the first five books of the Bible, right? This is more for us, the John's readers, uh, John's readers back then and also today for us. Jesus, says John, is the fulfillment of the living water that runs abundantly, the living water that satisfies completely, eternally for all humanity. Jesus is the water and the food in which all humanity desires and delights. Now, he doesn't mention food here. He will mention the food later on in later chapters. He talks about the water right now. So Jesus is the water and the food, which we will discuss, in which all humanity desires and delights. Jesus is the living water that provides the wicked with abundant pardon, as in abundant forgiveness. In Jesus, we will never be left wanting, never be left empty, never be left lonely, and never be left afraid because Jesus loves us. That's what being alive is all about. Being alive is being in Jesus and have him fill us up with his spirit, where he will transform our lives into eternal lives. 
we will finally come alive regardless whatever circumstances we have. Whether we have children, whether, it be we, whether we be at the movies or sports or projects that we can accomplish, it doesn't matter. We are full regardless of our circumstances. The Samaritan woman, well, she didn't quite catch that. But John's readers, you and I and his readers, most likely they did. And we should too. Let's move on. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. That's interesting, right? After Jesus said all that, after he addressed her sin, after Jesus revealed to her that he is willing to talk to her and accept her, she goes on and talks about some theological thing. Why? Why is she going off into that? We don't quite sure know but we'll probably discuss that soon enough. Right now, after when Jesus revealed her sin and revealed her deepest need, the woman says, where should we worship? Well, in verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, to summarize what Jesus said in response to the woman's question about where we should worship, Jesus basically said, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay, clearly the woman thinks Jesus is a prophet because, hey, prophets do have a reputation to know a lot about someone. I'm always afraid of talking to people with the gift of prophecy. You don't know what they know. But, in, but interestingly, the woman changes the subject and she responds with a question of the true location to worship, right? After addressing her sin, the woman decides, whoa, I'm going to talk about something theological. I don't want to go there yet. Jesus responds to her question about where, what does he say? In spirit and truth. Well, who has the spirit and truth? Well, according to John chapter 1, 2, and 3, until now, it's Jesus. It's no longer a physical location like a temple. Worshiping God is now in Jesus and through Jesus only. Yes, Jesus acknowledges why the woman probably does not catch anything that he said and explains to her why she's confused and just didn't catch it. Because God's redemptive story and his plan was only revealed through the Jews. The Jews were his instrument in revealing his love to the entire world. But they flubbed it. They failed miserably. So much failure that even the Samaritans were left out not knowing about this redemptive story in Jesus. So Jesus says to her and to us, now is the time when all will know well, when all will now know through him that worshiping God is through him and in him, in Jesus. And that eternal life and living waters is in Jesus. And Jesus provides that. Let's continue. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The woman's wheels are definitely turning, right? It's obvious. She's thinking now. She's thinking a lot, whether it be in her mind or in her heart. Because not only did Jesus uh, address her deepest needs and desires, 
and addressed her sin, Jesus also addressed her theological questions. So she's like trying to process all of this. She's trying to put these things together. For Samaritans, the Messiah is called Taheb, who they believe is the true prophet and teacher who will reveal the proper way to God. Now, who is the Taheb? Well, the Taheb will, in Numbers 21, pour out abundant waters to give life. So for her, Jesus might be the Taheb. But Jesus again clarifies, and the English translation doesn't quite catch it. So I will just put the Greek up here for all of you to see. I'll say it in Greek. Hego, Amy, ho lalon, soy. Ego, Amy. Sorry, I don't understand. Sorry, my Google just turned on. Ego, Amy is I am. Ho lalon, soy is the one who speaks to you. I am the one who is speaking to you. Boom. In the first five books of the Bible, the only person who said I am was and still is God himself. God in Jesus is speaking to the woman. Wham! Right in front of her face. Jesus uses the great I am. The phrase and address that she would be very familiar with because she knows her five books of the Bible. So Jesus is not the Taheb. Jesus is not just the Messiah. Jesus is God. The very Yahweh God himself who said that he himself will be the husband of all of humanity, of all of his chosen people. God himself, the true husband. Wow, God himself in front of this woman, a Samaritan woman who made poor choices, who is an outcast, God is willing to accept her and talk to her and care for her. Are you floored? Well, take a look at what happens next. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me that all that I ever did. Now, just before this passage, I skipped it because due to time, the woman was so excited, she left her water jug there with Jesus and just bolted back into town. So in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Remember that. Just Jesus' words. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus didn't perform any miracles or wonders here. It was just Jesus saying to these people about himself. Here's the first evidence of what it means to be alive. Here's an interesting observation. While the woman was asking Jesus theological questions, we kind of see a bit of transformation was going on inside of her. I wonder if that's how some of us respond when Jesus identifies our deepest need. We're too ashamed to admit it verbally to anyone. So we just do the religious stuff, sing the songs, look good, look prime and proper. And just look theologically interested, right? And ask the theological questions. But really, deep down, we have this deep need. And when we come to Jesus, and we allow him to work in us. Though we come out with this face of just theological treaties and stuff, 
when the work of the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit works in us and transforms us, He really just opens ourselves up. We become less ashamed of who we are. We become less ashamed of our deepest needs. We just blurt out like this Samaritan woman does and say, look, this guy knows exactly who I am, my deepest needs, and I'm no longer ashamed from it. You could see, you and I could see that this Samaritan woman is no longer ashamed, no longer living in shame or hiding from people because she just blurted it out in front of her town. Sure, she made her mistakes. Sure, she had uh, five husbands plus one at home. But everybody else knows that too. Yet she is no longer ashamed in proclaiming that in front of everybody. She's excited and alive because God showed up in front of her and wants to love her and accept her. The God who is the only one who can forgive, who is the only one who can show mercy, who is the only one that can show grace and wipe sin away, is in front of her, willing to converse, listen, accept, and love her. This is way better than any human husband. This is the true husband she was looking for at the well. It's Jesus, God himself, the true husband for her and all of humanity. She was so excited that in the previous verses that I didn't read, as I mentioned just now, she left her water jug behind, the very life giver kind of for her, right? This, is, this was the physical thirst. This symbolized to, symbolizes to provide her with that physical thirst. But now she realized that she has found something much more. Jesus, living water whom she will not be thirsty, but alive eternally. Having your deepest needs being fully satisfied, having being to be able to proclaim to the world and to everyone else of your deepest needs and not be ashamed of it, to be able to tell everybody about your sins and about your darkest areas of your lives and your poor choices, yet not be ashamed but being courageous and confident that God has done his work on me. That's what it means to be alive eternally. And hence, I think that's why the Samaritans address Jesus as the savior of the world. The Roman Caesars in those days used that phrase for themselves. They saw themselves as saviors of the world because they thought that their high lifestyle and elite qualities and material wealth was the key to being alive, i.e. just plain water. Yet Jesus says no. None of these material wealth, eliteness, and high lifestyle can truly satisfy humans' deepest desire so that they can be alive. Only Jesus can. Not by belonging in a club, belonging to a community of high lifestyle. No, the only way to satisfy humanity's deepest desires and to be fully alive is in Jesus and believe in Jesus, the true savior of the world. Let's conclude with our final story in this chapter. 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Now, those were the signs and wonders. For they too had gone to the feast. 
So he came again to Canaan and Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had came from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now you being plural, he wasn't addressing just the official. He was addressing everyone in front of him, which were the Galileans. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, just like the Samaritans. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. You see, he didn't see his son alive yet. He just believed Jesus' words. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Okay, first off, hometown. Jesus referred to hometown not being honored in his hometown. And this is a reference to Jerusalem. When Jesus told the temple leaders about turning his father's house into a marketplace, which means house is not just a building, but a people. (laughs) Sort of like Thor saying, Asgard is not a place, but the people. God's people, God's chosen people were the Israelites, but his own people didn't want him around, which we will need to remember in the coming chapters, but we're just noting it here just to remember. According to the Old Testament, what happens to Israelites when they reject God? God abandons them. And so this time, Jesus, who is God, is now gathering a new group of people as God's people. First, his 12 disciples. Now these groups of Samaritans who believed in his word that he's the savior of the world. And they believe not because of signs and miracles like the Galileans. They just believe because of Jesus's testimony and the Samaritan woman's testimony. Samaritans, equivalent to Gentiles, didn't need to see miracles, wonders, and signs. All it took was testimony of someone who has found life to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's a good lesson for all of us, right? It's not about the best theological arguments. It's not about the best apologetics that we can do. It's not about the best whatever of how we could restate Bible verses immediately in our heads. The best testimony The best way to propagate the gospel is your own testimony of how you found life in Jesus, how you are alive in Jesus. Actually, it's not even about your mere words of testimony. It's how you behave and live out your lives in light of being the safe one in Jesus. How do you live a life? How are you living? And how are you proclaiming the gospel in your life? Do Do people see you alive? Do people see hope? and joy in you when they see you? The Samaritans did in the Samaritan woman, and that's why they believed. All right, so what happens here? On the third day in Galilee, an official's son was dying. Jesus said to the official, go, your son will live. Now, it's not just once. In the Greek, he does it three times. What happened? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and his son lived. Believe and live. Now, is there any significance of John referring this event 
that this event happened on the third day and that Jesus mentioned your son will live three times. Does John want us to set our eyes on Jesus's resurrection on the third day? Maybe, and quite possible. Many commentators said that it is quite possible. But for me, I need to remain in this chapter in this context. And because it just came after the Samaritan woman, we can safely conclude that Jesus really, in light of the third day, etc., Jesus gives life to everyone who believes, no matter who they are. Jesus renews our lives. Jesus rebuilds our lives. And not just that, Jesus transforms our lives into eternal lives when we believe in him. So in summary, for John, the story of the Samaritan woman and the official son tell us three things. First, Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is God. Second, to quote from the Backstreet Boys, he doesn't care who you are, whether you're a Samaritan woman, with a baggage of poor choices, whether you're Nicodemus, who is a well-educated theologian, whether you're even an official, uh, probably a Roman official. He doesn't care where you're from. He doesn't care what you did. He doesn't care about anything as long as you believe in Jesus. Third, what does being alive look like? Well, it's to have your deepest needs fully satisfied. The needs of your soul, as Dopinder said earlier on in our movie scene. Once those needs are met, you're alive every day and forever. And in order to do that, it's only through Jesus. Jesus provides this. He wants to provide this. And he will give it abundantly to you and to me if we believe in him. Amen. Thank you.